From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Alfred Turner. Welcome to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history. Today, Walter Edgar and I will be talking with Patrick Dean, author of Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. In 1722, Mark Catesby stepped ashore in Charlestown in the Carolina colony. And over the next four years, this young naturalist made history as he explored America's natural wonders, collecting and drawing plants and animals which had never been seen back in the old world. Nine years later, Catesby produced his magnificent and groundbreaking book, The Natural History of Carolina, the first ever illustrated account of American flora and fauna. I'd like to welcome to our podcast today, Patrick Dean, the author of a new book entitled Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and His Adventures in a New World. Patrick is the executive director of a rail trail nonprofit. He lives on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee and has written widely about nature. He's been a teacher. And what he has done with Nature's Messenger is to bring Mark Catesby to, I would say, a general audience. As a historian, I applaud that. This is not a book of jargonese. So, Patrick, let's talk about how you got into Mark Catesby? Actually, a long time ago, about 30 years ago, I was reading uh, a lot of naturalists, Wendell Berry, William Bartram, and I came across a magazine article, I'll never forget, a short little blurb about Mark Catesby, whom I'd never heard of. I think it must have been an art exhibition or something. And I remember trying to find out more about him because he seemed like a very interesting person. And there was nothing, there was literally nothing more to be, to be found or read or learned about him circa 1995 or so. And, you know, it was, it was literally the day before the internet. <laughs> and so, so that was the dead end of my research. And I shrugged my shoulders and went on. And then in 2021, I just finished my first book and um, I hadn't even thought about whether I was going to write a, another or what it was going to be on. And the idea of Catesby just popped into my head and I thought, well, I'll go see if there's anything more. And I was very lucky that a lot of scholarship and a lot of writing had been done on Catesby in the meanwhile, particularly in the last five or 10 years. And so I had plenty to work with, and uh, it was uh, off to the races from there. Did you have any training in botany at all? <laughs> no, no, not a botanist, not an ornithologist, not an ichthyologist, just a generalist who is uh, who loves being outside and loves nature and and uh, has a layman's, you know, familiarity, can name a few birds, the ones I like and that sort of thing. But no, I, I generally came to this project as a, as a generalist. Well, one of the things that you've done in, I think, your, the subtitle, because all books have got to have a subtitle, Mark <laughs> Catesby and His Adventures in a New World, tells us what you really are all about. You place Mark Catesby in time. This is not a book for botanists or ornithologists or whatever, as you say. This is a discussion of the Augustan age, the age of exploration, and it was all undertaken not by government funding, by private enterprise. Curious gentlemen, especially in London, based in London. That's right. You know, i I feel really fortunate to have found a very interesting person and a very fascinating time to write about. 
with this book. You know, it was um, I say somewhere in there that in it, that Mark is Mark Hatesby is sort of on the edge of of all of these sort of beginnings of very important and interesting historical trends going on. Uh, you know, we're just seeing the the growth of the South Carolina colony. We're seeing the the advent of Great Britain's imperial and naval uh, power, and this huge, almost unfathomable craze for botanical knowledge, along with the other scientific knowledge that was going on, going on with the scientific revolution in England. So all of these things were bubbling up and fermenting, and uh, Catesby was just sort of surfing those waves and just appears right at the right time, both for himself personally and to make, I hope, an interesting, an interesting book. Well, let's go back and talk about Mark Catesby. Many of our listeners, particularly in South Carolina, might know about him, but uh, others around the country might not. Well, he was born in 1683, grew up in England, just northeast of London. He was considered a part of the landed gentry. His his family, both his mother and father's family, um, were important local people. They were lawyers and planters and all those sorts of things. And he probably went to school, although we can't prove that. His two brothers did, and we assume he did also. Um, and he was surrounded by learning and books and, at least in one case, a botanical garden, his uncle's. And so he, at some point, acquired just a, a fascination with natural history and learned to uh, draw and paint well enough to present what he learned you know, in, in beautiful works of art. And his ambitions brought him twice to the Americas, uh, once in 1712 to Virginia and then the trip for which he's most famous in 1722 to the Carolina colony. All right. Well, let's talk about that trip to Virginia because that was, I think, kind of crucial. That's something, quite frankly, I did not know about Catesby. Of course, I zeroed in immediately on his South Carolina ventures, but he had family out in Virginia, did he not? That's right. When He came over um, accompanying his sister, Elizabeth, who was married to a very prominent physician named William Cock, who had assume uh, roles of importance in uh, in the Virginia colony. And so he came to Williamsburg with her for her to be with her husband uh, in 1712. And he became uh, fast friends with William Byrd II, uh, the scion of the famous Byrd family of Virginia, and uh, spent a great deal of time with him, uh, traveled with him, and may well have even gone out to uh, the western edge the uh, in the mountains, the Shenandoah Mountains with Byrd. Also traveled to the Chesapeake, to what we now call the Delmarva Peninsula, and um, took notes, made drawings, and even sent plantings back to certain influential people in England because Caseby already, I think, had it in his mind to become a famous naturalist. And even though he had no specific uh, job in America, he was already sort of looking to establish his reputation and his credentials in that area. I have to ask a question about Mr. Catesby. The fact that he comes to this place across the ocean and when he travels, he takes a notebook with him and he makes notes about the flora and fauna. And and I believe you said he also collected some some samples, right? That's right. Uh, I think about today, people will travel in the United States, say, to a part of the United States they've never been to. That would be like perhaps me going to Colorado. And I would pull out my phone and I would take pictures of things that I thought were interesting. 
but he wanted to focus in on some of the minutia, the plants, the, the, the animals. And it just strikes me as a different mindset that people have today when they travel. I mean, am I, am I minimizing our, our fellow citizens today or am I putting too much emphasis on that? I don't think you're minimizing it. In fact, earlier generations didn't take photographs. They bought postcards. True. Yeah, but in this case, he didn't. He didn't even. He sort of created his own postcards to take home with him. That's true, and and you know, this is. I think part of that is because we are in what we are in the scientific revolution. We are in the Enlightenment, and you know, mm-hmm. there were they were they were crazy to classify and note and sort and and yeah. chronicle. You yeah, know, I think of Thomas Jefferson every day recording the temperature at Monticello. You know, um, it was part of the age to to immerse yourself in the facts of what was going on around you. Um, well, the in details a way, of everything. that scientific way of looking at the world was somewhat new. Well, Patrick made a very important point earlier when he talked about Catesby sent specimens back to certain people in England. Catesby not only wanted to be a naturalist, but in today's world, he was a great, uh, he was a grantsman. He knew who had to go for the money to fund his research. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And there was a a Quaker merchant was one of the people he was sending those specimens back to, wasn't it? That's right, Peter Collinson. So how long was he out in Virginia? You said he went out in 1712? Came back in 1719. Okay. Yes. And immediately started making the rounds and introducing himself to the important people in London. Um, and, and again, gaining a reputation for his, his art, his artistic skills, as well as his knowledge of, of natural history, of plants and animals. And uh, that's what made him the prime candidate when the 1720s came along, early 1720s, for a group of influential and wealthy enthusiasts of natural history to select him to be the one to go to to South Carolina. And so they actually selected him. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to do it and then raise the money. That's right. He was he was chosen by this group, um, including Francis Nicholson, the governor of South Carolina, and Sir Hans Sloan and some others, Lord Shandos, who who threatened before that to send him to Africa to do natural history, which, you know, Makes you wonder what would have happened if that had been the case. But that plan got squashed, and he was sent to South Carolina instead. He came out, and he spent a number of years here and in the Bahamas before he went back. And you mentioned former Governor Nicholson of of South Carolina. So he had the right credentials. And South Carolina in the 1720s was a little bit in a a fluid state. Uh, There had just been the Revolution of 1719 when the colonists had thrown out the proprietors. Nicholson, of course— benefited from that. But he found a welcome in South Carolina, and uh, he set about it rather systematically, uh, exploring first the low country. And by the way, you define the low country beautifully, up to 60 miles inland, that's it. Um, (laughs) There was a place called Land's End, which was 60 miles from the coast. And for most uh, folks, including many Charlestonians today, uh, that is the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the fascinating things to me is, yes, he was very capable of drawing, but he purchased an enslaved person, a young man, to help him. Yes, that was a very interesting thing. And it was one of those, um, you know, I'm sometimes asked about the 
the limitations of the historical record and, and, you know, what I would like to know more about. And this is certainly one of the things that, that is just really, really difficult not to know more about this than we do. We have three mentions in three different letters back to his, his main agent, Peter Collinson in London. He had a really rough first season of collecting in the low country. He was laid up for several weeks um, with uh, an infection on his face that that uh, probably came from just overwork. So Catesby realized that he needed uh, help with his with his work, and so he wrote a letter to Peter Collinson in London and basically said, "Can you credit my account twenty pounds so that I may purchase a Negro boy?" And then a little later on, uh, the slowness of transatlantic mail being what it was, he he nudges Collinson and said. Um, just to, just to remind you that I'd like to have this 20 pounds credited. And then a little later on, he thanks him for having credited his account 20 pounds. And that's literally all we know about the entire incident. The boy is never mentioned. Um, we have to assume from the third letter that he was purchased, but we have no idea of his fate. We don't know. We don't know his long. name either, do we? No, we know nothing else, literally mm. nothing else about this, this person, this enslaved boy. And so uh, we have to look at everything else that Catesby did and said about enslaved Africans in the natural history mainly, and just basically ask questions. That's what I decided to do with the situation. Just ask questions and, and realize that, you know, a writer doesn't always have to furnish answers. Sometimes they can, he or she can just put the questions out there and let others, you know, grapple with them. Well, unlike many white settlers in South Carolina of that time, uh, he paid attention to what the enslaved persons in South Carolina, how they related to the natural world in terms of plants and their particularly their medicinal uses. That's right. I think one of the really neat things about him is that um, he, although he did have entree to the planters and their plantations in the low country and spent time in their homes and, and advised them on what to plant in their gardens and that sort of thing, he also took the time to figuratively, if not literally, walk around behind the plantation homes to uh, the quarters where the enslaved Africans lived, and to talk to them about what they grew for food and for medicine, and to write about it in the in the natural history. You know, you have to balance that against against these this possible purchase of a Negro boy. I mean, he he definitely paid respect and deference to uh, the knowledge that enslaved Africans had. He even refers to uh, an esteemed Negro doctor, capital D R, in his writing. Which you know, not only was there no title like that. But that's an extraordinary gesture of respect for an enslaved African who was obviously known in his among his people in his in his community as a as a healer and, and someone knowledgeable about plants. And well, medicine. he he also uh, respected the Native Americans and again their relations with the natural world. That's right. He credits them in the natural history for. Um, their knowledge about plants of healing and things like the cure of ulcers and dangerous wounds and things like that. So again, you know, I try to, I, I don't want to, you know, sanitize the history or, or anachronize him in terms of what he felt and how he acted. You know, we do have to pair this, this ownership apparently of us, of a slave an enslaved African boy with these other, with these other ways of looking at the world that we know he had. 
Well, when Catesby first came back into general knowledge here in South Carolina, folks all said, oh, like Audubon, Audubon, of course, came a century later. Um, but the two had very different techniques. Audubon liked to do his painting of birds from dead ones, and uh, <laughs> Catesby liked to use the real thing. That's right. You know, this has been one of the more interesting things for me to navigate as I've, I've talked to people and, and appeared uh, before groups to talk about this because Audubon is so much better known and it's quite easy to get into, a, uh, I don't know, a, a debate or a rivalry between Catesby and, and Audubon. And, and, you know, I've certainly fallen prey to the classic biographer's dilemma where you become the, the champion of the person you've written about. But uh, yes, that's one thing you can definitely say. He, he went out of his way to claim in the natural history to assert that he drew whenever possible, he drew from life. He drew plants as soon as he could, as soon as, you know, as quickly as he could after he uh, found them or, uh, or plucked them. And uh, even fish he tried to paint, illustrate, although he had to use a number of specimens <laughs> because he had to bring them out of the water. But then um, he tried as much as possible to paint them from life, unlike the man that some some author recently called the exterminator in chief, Mr. Audubon. <laughs> Whoops, did I say that? No, no, I, I didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also sometimes mixed the flora and the fauna. There's a famous illustration which you include in your book, and that is of a piece of sea life, seaweed, if you would, sea plant, and a flamingo. That's right. I, I, I really enjoy, you know, those things that give you a glimpse into the personality of of the person, of the artist. And, you know, we... We talk a lot justifiably about how Catesby was one of the earliest who, who went out of his way to match the like birds with their habitat. Or when he painted a locust tree, he, he noted he put a bison with it and noted that he only ever saw the tree where buffalo droppings were. Uh-huh. So he was a sort of a proto-ecologist in the way that he matched those up. And it's he's he's deserving of note for that. But in this case and in some others, he Totally threw that out the window. He he grabs this this sea creature, sort of like a coral, and yanks it out of the ocean and plants it on solid ground behind a flamingo, per- purely for aesthetic <laughs> effect, um, just because it looks good, not because it has any scientific relevance. Well, and, um, you have I to... really love that piece of art. I think it's one of my favorites. It looks really modern to me. The artist in him took over from the scientist for a moment, I guess. Well, that's right. That's right. And I love it. It's one of my favorite things of his. Well, after his sojourn in South Carolina, he went on to the Bahamas and then home. That's right. He uh, spent almost a year, eight months, I believe, in the Bahamas, um, focusing mainly on marine life, having some some really interesting adventures there. And then uh, back to London, where he had to figure out how he was going to you know, translate all this into a book, especially with very little funding to to uh, promote the publishing of it. And before we go on to the book, Walter said something to me in conversations past and again this morning about handling some of the specimens that Catesby brought back. Some of these things are still preserved and still around. And you, where was this that we, you saw them? I was... At the Natural History Museum in London. Okay. And I was, I had friends there who got me into the uh, Catesby collection, and I was able to, with white gloves, uh, go through his herbarium, uh, which was really 
quite a thrill, and I enjoyed my conversation with the young curator who was amazed that a historian would say, oh, I know where that grows in South Carolina. I've got that in my yard. He said, I didn't know historians did flora. I said, (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) And uh, I was also offered the opportunity to go to see his bird skin collection, which was not in the Natural History Museum. It was in a suburb, but I declined that. I had gotten to to go through the herbarium, spent a whole morning doing it, and it was an absolutely uh, glorious uh, experience. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's really it's really great that we have these artifacts left over from uh, what he sent over. Patrick, it's amazing. I mean, yes, they're dried, but they're recognizable. They haven't crumbled. It's it really is incredible. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's get on with the publication of the book because that took a while. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I think it shows Caseby's ingenuity and his business sense. Yes, I referred to as difficulties because, you know, we're still at a point where there are no publishers in the sense that we think of them today, no one who'll take on the initial costs of publishing. And so he went to the subscription method and acquired something like uh, 160-some-odd people who agreed to to pay for the, the sections of the book as it came out. It came out in, in tens installments plus an appendix. And the prospectus, I always chuckle about this because he promised a, a section that would come out every four months. <laughs> and, uh, instead, it took 16 years for Oops. the 10 installments to, to be to, to He, be, he uh, had some very patient subscribers, didn't he? <laughs> um, and then, uh, so he did that. Plus, he had two wealthy patrons who, who had to spot him upfront money because he told the subscribers they wouldn't have to pay anything until each installment came out. So he still needed upfront costs. He relied on the two donors for that. And then he had planned to have the, his drawings etched on the continent, and that turned out to be too expensive. So he taught himself to etch with one of the more famous uh, engravers of the period who did copies of famous artworks for the, for the rich and powerful in England. That was acceptable at the time. It wasn't considered plagiarism or theft. And so he taught Catesby to etch, and Catesby etched every single one of the drawings that he did, uh, except for maybe one or two, it, for it, the 220 uh, plates of the natural history. And I find that remarkable. I mean, not an easy process. Given the delicacy and the beauty of Catesby's etchings, uh, I just thought it was remarkable what he did. All right, more than 200 etchings. Mm. But once you've got the etchings, they have to be hand-colored. right. And he hand colored his etchings. Some, Some of them. them. Yes, we've we've um, Henrietta McBurney's wonderful book, Eliminating Natural History, sort of makes the point that it's it's physically impossible for him to have done all of them, even in the first edition. Mm-hmm. So she also noted differences in the way they were colored that that indicate different hands having done it. He used phrases like "in my house" or "under my hand" or things like that, which makes us think it was done. Under his supervision, but not by him personally in every case. But we know he did color some of them for sure. And so. can we give the name of these volumes, the, the 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 book, if you will, so folks might look it up online? Do you want the long name? Well, give it. Yeah, <laughs> sure, give the us a long name, name and then the short one. So when we talk about it, we use the short one. Um, the Natural History of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahama Islands containing the figures of birds, beasts, fishes, serpents, insects, and plants. And 
there's about six more lines after that. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll just call it his natural history then. The natural history. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so it came out between 1731 and 1747. So how were these volumes received? I mean, acclaim, uh, a shrug? <laughs> they apparently were received to great acclaim. The Royal Society called it the magnificent work. It was praised in, in newspapers of the time. It was received by Princess Carolyn and dedicated to her. The first volume was George II's wife. And, you know, it's it sold for 20 guineas, which uh, an amazing amount, the, the most expensive work of natural history in the period, and one of the most expensive books, period, um, 20 guineas would have paid a working laborer in England at the time for a year. It was a status symbol. It was a gorgeous display work to have in your your home or your castle or your manor. And it was uh, it made Catesby's career. Hmm. And he did become a member of the Royal Society, right? He did. Um, he he contributed quite a bit to the Royal Society, including one famous uh, article and and reading of that article in 1746, in which he related his experiences lying on a sloop on off the coast of Cuba and watching what he called rice birds, which were bobolinks. Um, flying toward Carolina just as the rice was ripening in the fields and then watching them fly back south later in the year when things were starting to cool down in Carolina, giving some of the first direct evidence for seasonal migration of birds at a time when many still subscribed to Aristotle's idea that they burrowed into the sides of hills in the mud to hibernate for the winter. Well, so um, he was he was on the forefront of of science for his time as well as as well as for natural history and, and publishing. Well, you you mentioned in your your book and have illustrations of three of the birds that he used: the ivory bill, woodpecker, the passenger pigeon, and the Carolina parakeet. The parakeet and the passenger pigeon are certainly extinct. There are rumors that the ivory bill is alive in Louisiana, but nobody can actually prove that. It's been debated here in South Carolina. Uh, in fact, in our General Assembly was said that that's why they protected a certain natural swamp. It's because rumors were that an ivory bill was there. But you mentioned the bobolink, and in South Carolina now, it is not extinct, but it is very, very rare. I did not know that. I do plant my stake, though, and, and claim that I am, I'm a believer for the ivory-billed woodpecker. Oh. I... Uh, I grew up in the Mississippi Delta, and, and I, I will not believe that there are not swamps in Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas that are not remote enough for an ivory bill to hide. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out belief on that. Well, former State Senator Alex Sanders expounded at length in the General Assembly on the belief that the ivory bill was still alive and well somewhere in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> so, sadly, the parakeet is not. The Carolina parakeet, the most beautiful bird, I think, uh, in the colonies. And the one, of course, that was the illustration I used for the uh, the frontispiece of my history because I couldn't think of anything uh, more beautiful to describe the state. Uh, for which history, thank you very much. I made good use of it. I hope uh, I made good. I made extensive use of it for my book. So, uh, thank you for, for doing uh, that. Well, Patrick, I hate this. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Uh, Long-time listeners would know it's time for me to say to my guest, 
Any last words before we sign off today? I hope um, I hope that I brought Mark Caseby to new readers. I think he's worth knowing about, and uh, he's a wonderful addition to South Carolina history and American history. All right. Well, Patrick Dean, the author of Nature's Messenger, Mark Catesby and his adventures in a new world. Thanks for being with us today on our podcast. That's it for another episode of Walter Edgar's Journal. Walter and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Patrick Dean's book, Nature's Messenger, tells the story of Mark Catesby's life and work in a way that is both historically detailed and accessible to the average reader, and that makes it a pretty special book. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as from your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon. 